you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Nehemiah. Closer to the first third of your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 2nd King, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. I have to sing the song. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There you go. You're finding your way there. I think what we see very quickly in the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah saying, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. I think you see that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think you see that in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven and said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, said best love. What is, what is Nehemiah doing? He's saying, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think Nehemiah knows the redemption that is coming. He doesn't know who the name Jesus is, but he knows something is on its way. So, that's not my introduction. This is my introduction. Let's go ahead and read. We're just going to be in the first four verses. That's all we're going to get through today. We've got to set a lot up today. And then we'll talk through these first four verses and kind of the last little bit. I'll try and help you take notes. Just for the record, there's a blank page, I think, on one side for a reason. There we go. Uh, There's no fill-ins, but the first roughly 30 minutes is probably going to be that blank page. I'll try and help you take some notes in there. We're going to cover a lot of history and try and set Nehemiah in a context so that we can understand Nehemiah appropriately here for the next 13, 14 weeks, however long it takes us to get through here. The second half will be a little more of a distillation or a, a distilling of the first four verses of Nehemiah. With that said, let's read. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that it would edify your people that we'd be strengthened here today, that we would also be in many ways broken, Father, so that we would be used by you. Lord, I pray that uh, your words would have a profound impact on our lives. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Let me just say this as we get into Nehemiah. I'm excited about Nehemiah. I hope you're excited about Nehemiah. I hope you've gotten to read Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm going to assume a good bit of context and understanding uh, from that, so I hope you've gotten a chance. If not, you won't be totally lost today. Uh, but uh, if not, make sure this week that you take some time to read all of Ezra and Nehemiah. It'll help set the context for your mind and for your heart. With that said, let's begin to think about Nehemiah here today. You know, when we look around us, things are not as they should be. For example, the temperature in this room is not as it should be. And I just can't preach in a jacket, okay? But I, so if I'm up here shivering, I might, my, I might preach harder just so that I can stay warmer. Um, 
but the heat is not as it should be. As we look around us, things are not as they should be. As we look around our world today, we see that things are not the way that they should be. You know, I immediately think of Tom as a policeman and looking around, seeing he, he just kind of see physically, face-to-face, daily, things are not as they should be. When we look in the news and we hear religious oppression of Christians, even in our own country, something says in our hearts, this isn't the way it should be. When we hear of children dying before even getting a chance to breathe, something deep within us says, this isn't the way it should be. I want to move a little closer to home. I think when we look at our marriage, we're married, look at our relationships, we feel the tension, the strife, the miscommunication, I mean, whatever that might, whatever this might look like, but something from our heart says this isn't the way it should be. As we engage our co-workers and we see things like co-worker abuse for the sake of prominence and promotion, also known as climbing the corporate ladder, we hear We also look and we see grumbling about spouses and marriages on the brink of divorce and something in us says, this isn't the way it should be. And for most of that, if not all of that, our hearts are probably right. It's not the way it should be. I mean, certainly Jesus, as we read in Matthew 23, says that that's what's going to happen. But just because Jesus says it's what's going to happen doesn't mean that's the way it's supposed to be. This isn't the way it should be. This isn't the way God intended it to be. This isn't the way God created it to be. When we look and we see things that are not as they should be, I think this is a seed in the heart of a reformer. A reformer, someone who's going to bring about change. Someone who's going to spur on a difference and help bring things back to the way they should be. And one of the seeds to the heart of a reformer is a recognition of what's not right. Now, as I was thinking through this, we have a couple common problems, I think, in each of our lives, even in this room Sometimes we don't know that something is wrong. Sometimes we're looking at something, and it's not as it should be, but we don't see it. So we might see something broken, but don't realize it's broken. And I would say, for many of us, this is often because we don't know the heart of God concerning that thing that is broken. We don't know the designer's plan for that item. So we don't know that God's going, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. For some of this, maybe this is like communication in our marriage. We don't realize it's broken because we don't know God's design for the communication in our marriage. So we might see, but we don't see the problem. We don't see the brokenness. If we can't see the brokenness, then we can't see the need for reform. So I think that's potentially one problem as we jump into the sermon today and as we think about the rest of Nehemiah. Number two is a potential problem is that we know something is broken, but it doesn't stir our hearts or it doesn't stir our affections. We know something's broken, but it doesn't stir our hearts. I think this is often because we know that it's wrong, but it's not a conviction. It's not a conviction. Our belief has not become conviction. I think brokenness is another seed. Having our hearts stirred toward something that is broken is another seed or the beginning of a reformation. Albert Moeller, Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of the seminary I graduated from, says this in his book on leadership. He says, belief is something you hold, but conviction is something that holds you. Belief is something you hold, but conviction is something that holds you. 
think what he's getting at there is conviction is something that drives you. It's something that's going to move you. You know, particularly if you grew up in the church, you probably have lots of beliefs and very few convictions. And that's going to be true if your faith is still that of your mom and dad's only and has not become yours. It's another sermon for another time. God's plan. Alright, so now I want us to <clears throat> kind of step back from the text and we're going to just kind of gather a very big picture here so we can jump into Nehemiah. God's plan from the beginning of time was for his for a beginning of time for his people was that they would bring dominion and restoration to the world, all right? So we see that God created men and women to be reformers, to bring things to the way they were meant to be. Right, now I'm going to I'm going to have to nuance this a little bit for some of us and if if this is if you're not worried about this part of it then that's okay. But in creation God created Adam to bring about order and dominion to the earth. And I think that Adam and Eve's plan, God's plan for Adam and Eve, was not just to stay in the garden, but was to bring about the expansion of Eden and bring about order and dominion to the rest of the world. So I think what happened was God created His place in such a way that gave Adam the purpose of bringing about what should be out of what was not so. Now, let me, let me nuance this just, just a little bit here. That doesn't mean, I don't think that the rest of the earth was broken in the sense that's going to be broken after the fall, but I think God created it so that Adam would bring about order beyond the garden. If, if that's... I'm not a concern of yours, then that's okay. God's people, though, zero in back with me into creation. God's people were Adam and Eve, and they lived in God's place under his rule, gospel and kingdom, right? They're in the Eden, God's place under God's rule, subsequent blessing, all of that. They were his people. Then what happens? The fall happens. Then Adam and Eve eat from the tree. You see, up until this point, God had defined for Adam and Eve clearly how things were supposed to be and set Adam to the task of doing so, of bringing that about. Right? The animals were without name. He was to bring names and exercise dominion over the animals as an example of how things were not so, and Adam was to bring them into being so. But then what happens at the fall is Adam and Eve... At the very core, it's not just a matter of them that ate from the tree and God said not to. It was Adam and Eve saying, we want to define for ourselves how things should be. We are going to define that things should be this way and not as God has said they should be. Even down to the very thing where God says, don't eat from the tree or lest you will surely die. They say, no, 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 we don't believe you, you're wrong, we're going to eat from the tree. The very core in there is them saying, no, 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 God, the way you have said things are to be, we don't agree. Now as life progresses outside the garden, as Adam and Eve are pushed out of the garden, and outside of God's rule in the sense that they are living submissively under God, I mean, God is still sovereign over everything, but Adam and Eve now find others not agreeing on the way things should be. So now not only is there disagreement between people and God, but now we see a disagreement on the way things should be, even between people. Hence, Cain and Abel. Cain says the way things should be would be that I would murder my brother, that his life would be no longer. Obviously, I'm sure Abel disagreed with that. No, I think I should continue to live. That's the way things should be. Certainly, God thought that he should continue to live as well. You see that as God comes and holds Cain accountable. This is something that's not as it should be. If you continue reading in Genesis, uh, you, know, you have the flood and all that happens, and then we come to a man named Abraham. 
Abraham, in Abraham, God promises to bring about things the way they should be. He promises that he's going to have a people. He promises to establish them in a land that there will be a blessing to all nations. I think what he is getting at is that this blessing to all nations was again back to the garden. Adam and Eve were, be t- were to be a blessing to the world. They were their exercise of dominion and order and bringing about that across the earth was to be it was to be a blessing to the earth and to those who would come after Adam and Eve. So God says it's not so. And I have a conviction about that, and I'm going to make it so. And so that's what God is saying to Abraham. That which is not as it should be, I will make it as it should be. And God promises Abraham that he will return things to the way they were meant to be. Then God's people, of course, there's rebellion and things that happen, and I can't go into all those details, but then we see... Israel or Abraham and his people end up in Egyptian slavery. God's people now are under a foreign ruler in this Egyptian slavery. They're not in God's place. This is not the land of Canaan. God is not the ruler. There is a foreign ruler. Again, God is still sovereign over all of this, but they are not under God's direct rule. There is now a foreign, non-godly ruler over them. And God sees this, and for various reasons, we don't have time for today, He says, these are not the way things should be. I'm going to use this. I'm going to rescue my people. We see this in the Exodus. As God rescues them, so the parting of the Red Sea, all that happens, and they end up in the wilderness on the way to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, what's going on at Mount Sinai? It's God saying things are not the way they should be. Let me bring about order. Let me bring about, and this is where we see the the law comes into the picture. He begins establishing his kingdom. God begins establishing the way things are meant to be. The law is to help God's people be God's people. It's to help, the law is to begin a reformation among the people. And then God continues to lead them through the wilderness all the way to the border of Canaan and God's people rebel, right? So they don't go into it and God then punishes them with the wandering in the wilderness. Again, recognition of things are not as they should be, so I'm not going to bring you into the promised land just yet. So God disciplines them and it works about bringing things as they should be. And the wilderness, then we come up to the promised land. God takes them into the promised land. God has done a work as they're in the promised land. He's done a work in His people and prepared them to be His people in His place. Things are looking more the way they should be. Not perfect, but more like they should be. The land of Canaan, they're in the promised land. This was the land promised to Abraham. And we've got to understand, for the Israelites, this is a big deal. This is huge. I mean, I don't think we have a category to, to think about how big of a deal this is to God's people. Now God's people would live in His place under His rule. Things now seem to be the way they should have been all along. God is the king, and the people live as His people. God's defining of should be is being realized in Canaan, in the promised land. And I think the Israelites at this point are thinking is that it's as if eternity has finally begun. We will be God's people. We will be in His place. He will live, we will live under His rule. We will live in His blessing. We will do this for all of eternity. And all of that He promised to Abraham and that we see come before us will now be realized and we will live here going forward. I'm sure in many of those minds they're thinking the serpent has finally been crushed. We will now be God's people. But then what happens? Brokenness in the land. Rebellion. When things turned quickly again, the people turned to rebellion, 
and defining the should be how they wanted it to be. And so what happens? All this beauty and grandeur comes to a close. God punishes His children by allowing them to be conquered by Babylon, by the empire Babylon. What happens is they conquer God's place, and then you see the subsequent disbursement of God's people. All of God's people can no longer live as God's people in the land. They are dispersed. They are in exile. They are moved from their land. They are literally forced and taken and have to live here and here and here and here. No collective community of God. They're all over the place. Now the people of God had no home. Now the people were ruled by God-hating rulers. We see multiple different empires during this time until we get to the Persian Empire with King Cyrus in the book of Ezra. So the Jews are in exile. The city has been trampled. The Persian Empire, King Cyrus in the book of Ezra. So then with Ezra and King Cyrus, we can kind of zoom in here a little closer to the text. You see God, who doesn't seem to be the ruler, you see him exercise sovereignty over King Cyrus, okay? Which is a big theme for us to think about. What you see happen is that, I mean, this, I mean, this doesn't make sense. If you know anything about conquering and empires during this day, the last thing you would do is what King Cyrus decrees to happen in the book of Ezra. It doesn't make sense. But you see God's exercise of sovereignty over Cyrus here. So even though Cyrus is a foreign ruler, he is not ruling to serve God. He is ruling to serve himself. But what happens in Ezra is King Cyrus grants Ezra the opportunity to return to the city and ruin Jerusalem in order to establish some level of religious freedom among the Jews. But this is crazy. You just trample the city, or well, not just, but it happened in the past. This city's been trampled, they've been taken over, and now you're going to grant them some level of freedom, kind of to reestablish some things. So Cyrus decrees the rebuilding of the temple and the beginning of a Jerusalem reconstruction. Now, before we get too much of our hopes up, they would still be ruled by the Persian Empire. But I want to make sure we don't miss that even though they were ruled by the Persian Empire, God is still showing His people His sovereignty over the foreign rulers of this day. During Ezra's time of rebuilding in Jerusalem, things are kind of beginning to look a little more as they should be. Opposition rises and the rebuilding is halted. Matter of fact, it's put on hold by force. The establishment of God's kingdom, the display of God's glory among the nations as it was at that time, largely through the establishing of a physical city, was put on hold by force. Things seemed to be heading in the way that they should be. The feeling of peace and rest was on its way. Now these things have been halted. And this brings us to the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Here we have a Jew, an Israelite, who is living in Susa. That's important. Because in this age and in this time, Jews should be living in Jerusalem with other Jews. But he's not. He's in Susa. That's not Jerusalem. Last time I checked, the spelling was different. Susa, Jerusalem. He's not in Jerusalem. Something's wrong. Now Susa, what was Susa? Susa, if you study a little bit of history, was most likely the king of Persia's winter residence. It says in here that it is the capital. Susa is where the king resided. This is where Nehemiah was. So the people in exile with no home, not in God's place, as God had promised to Abraham. Things are not the way they should be, and Nehemiah knows this. 
because he knows the history, I think, that I just recounted for you leading all the way up to Nehemiah. And he would have known that with even greater detail, I think, than you and I have talked about this morning. Nehemiah knows that things are not the way they should be. In the beginning of a reformer's heart. His family, guys, you got to understand, as a Jew, his family would have rehearsed these stories that we just walked through lots of years and years and years of history. He would have rehearsed these stories. His family would have known these stories. He would have known the cyclical fashion of these stories and the repetition that, that has happened, you know, ages after ages. And Nehemiah, as we will see in this book, knew the Scriptures. He knew the Word of God. Nehemiah knows that God's kingdom does not look as God intends for it to look. He knows this. And then this brings us all the way to the words of Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read 1 through the first part of 2. So the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, or the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. All right, so the words of Nehemiah. That's, let me give us a kind of a little bit of a, this might seem a little more academic, but just give us a few pieces here that I think are important. The words of Nehemiah, that, that phrase, I'm going to operate as though Nehemiah wrote this, even though later on in the book he changes to third person, right? So in the beginning he's in first person, later on he's going to change to third person. I'm going to still operate as though Nehemiah wrote it, because there's no heading change. He declares he is writing at the beginning here. And that never changes. So that's just going to be an operation, uh, the way I'm going to operate for the next quite a few weeks. Then he says, it happened. It happened. Now it happened. This thing that happened was going to impact Nehemiah's life in a way that he probably could never imagine. Let's talk about timing. He says this, now it was the 20th year. What does he mean by the 20th year? He means the 20th year of the king. This would be King Artaxerxes at this time. King of Persia. This is following Cyrus, and then Darius, and then Artaxerxes. This is the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes began his rule, his rule, his reign, rather, in 465 B.C. And so the 20th year of this reign would be 445 B.C. So help us put this, again, in a, even in a time perspective or context here this is 445 years before jesus this is just a handful of years before this is important because the layout of our protestant bibles is not exactly the most helpful um, because i think nehemiah ezra nehemiah and malachi were probably like the last three books written Um, so and yet it's like right in here towards the very beginning what they've done is they've put all the like historical books together is what they've done in an attempt to be helpful. Um, the order of our books is not, um, I mean it's ordained by God, but it's not uh, infallible, just for the record. So, we have 445. This is right before what we would also call like the intertestamental period. So this is the period where basically everything's going to go silent. We're going to go where is God? God's, you're not going to hear anything. We don't have anything. I mean, there are books that are written during this time. Uh, we do not recognize those as scriptural, so on and so forth. Again, another conversation, another time. But this is happening right before. It's going to go silent. And then f- like 445 years later from this time, basically Jesus is going to walk onto the scene. And then we're going to have all of that that happens. All right. Uh, just, yes, all of that. Ch- all right, so Chislev. What do you mean by that? This is what we would probably call like November, December in our time. This would be like the last couple months of the year. Just FYI. Then he says Jerusalem. Jerusalem was known even among the nations as God's city. This is the one God and His city. 
This has been very distinct from the rest of the nations who worshipped multiple gods. This is the city who has one God. And God's city represented His rule and reign. So this is important. So then, the second part of verse 2, he says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So we see Nehemiah's question here. Right, Nehemiah is saying, what about God's people? What about God's place? I want to know about these things. What's happened? And remember, Nehemiah knows the Word of God. And if, if you've read the rest of Nehemiah, you'll see that I'm not just making an assumption there. There's evidence of that going forward in Nehemiah. He knows the promises of God. He particularly knows the promise given to Abraham concerning a land for God's people, a land where God's glory would radiate before, radiate from, before the nations, for the nations to see that this city would represent God's reign and God's rule and God's establishment, God's kingdom. He knows God promised to rescue His people and establish them in a place under His rule. Now God did this for Abraham through Moses, but then the people sinned and God allowed them to be conquered by Babylon. God disciplined his people, and so now they're in exile. Nehemiah has all this in the back of his mind. He knows things are not the way that they should be. And to kind of, again, continue building this context, God's people are still in exile to this day. Now, I'm not talking referring to the Jews. I I think Peter helps shine a light on this. God's people live in a land ruled by a foreign ruler. I know Christians like to think of the United States, at least the ones here, as being a Christian nation. It never has been and it never will be. God's people have always been in exile. The Republicans are not going to win the day, okay? Nor were the Libertarians, just for the record. Sorry, had to say that. That wasn't in my notes. First Peter 1, 1 through 2. What does Peter say? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he goes on and on and on. But I just want you to see, Peter recognizes God's people are in exile. We will remain in exile until the new heavens and the new earth come, until Jesus comes and establishes His kingdom on earth, we will remain in exile. Let me say this. It's only when we become so entangled in the delights of our foreign kings that we care not to delight in the coming eternal kingdom of Christ. Just as an onset thought, as a beginning thought here for us, we begin to delight in the things of this earth that we care not about the coming eternal kingdom of Christ. I think the Pharisees delighted in their own kingdom that as Jesus, that, that as Jesus, when he says the kingdom has come upon you, they could not taste and see that it was good because they were too satisfied with the kingdom that they had built, the kingdom that they were in, the foreign rulership of their day in their own lives, in their own hearts. That as Jesus says, no, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Okay, so what? And I think the same thing can happen to us today. That we can become so delighted in the kingdom that we perceive around us the kingdom of man that we cannot taste and see that the kingdom of God is a delight. All right, so a little bit more about Nehemiah. Nehemiah did not grow up while God's people were in God's place, all right? So it's something to keep in mind. Nehemiah had never tasted the glory days of the land of Canaan. I think that's important. So how did Nehemiah know how things should be? Was that because he lived in Canaan? Because he lived underneath God's rule in the promised land? No, it's because he knew the scriptures. He knew the way it was supposed to be. That's important for us because many of us are still living on the glory days of mom and dad. We don't know the scriptures. 
And we wonder why it's not conviction enough to bring change. The other thing I want to point out here is that Nehemiah was not clergy. Right? This is important. I mean, certainly Nehemiah had some power, as we will see as we go through Nehemiah, but Nehemiah was, Nehemiah was not a pastor. He was not a Levite. He was not a priest. He was not a prophet. So I think what happens is that we often preach Nehemiah as though it's a leadership book, and certainly there are leadership things to be learned in Nehemiah, but, but Nehemiah was more like the rest of us than a lot of other characters in the Bible. And I want you to see that Nehemiah here leads towards reform. And what happens here is not the result of pastors and clergy, it's the result of the people. And Nehemiah's leading them. What's going on right now is Nehemiah, the people of God, are trying to figure out how do we be the people of God and live as the people of God when our government is not ran by God. Sounds very familiar to today, right? How do we be the people of God when God is not the one running the government? Now, again, God is still sovereign over all of that. We don't forget that. So Nehemiah still, though, has these dreams. These dreams of this homeland. I don't mean literally, but, but uh, obviously he is thinking in his mind, what should my homeland look like? Jerusalem and the temple, again, represent the people's hope in God. That's what we have to keep in mind as we think about why is Nehemiah doing what he's doing? It's just a stupid building, right? I mean, no, this is very, very important. This represented for them the reign and rule of God, their hope in God. Much like we hope in the coming of King Jesus, there's hope in God's temple and God's establishment, God's kingdom. And Nehemiah here is longing for his homeland to be doing well. His people to be doing well. God's people to be doing well. So Nehemiah wants to know, how are God's people? How is God's place? And then he hears in verse 3, the state of the people and the land. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. All right, so understand that in this time, the strength of a God was of a God, lowercase g, God, was represented by the strength of a city. Like the nations around thought, oh, that's a strong God. The gods of the Persians are the strong gods because they have taken over the world. And, but when Nehemiah hears this about his city, about God's city, he thinks of the shame and ruin of his people. It's in shambles. It's broken down. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then Nehemiah thinks, our great God, and how does he look before the nations when his place lies in ruin? What are the people thinking about this God we worship because of the state of his kingdom, his city, his physical city? But Nehemiah not only remembers this, but Nehemiah also knows, again, the promises of God. He has a deep conviction about the way things are supposed to be. God is supposed to be king, and his people are supposed to live in his place. But instead, Artaxerxes is king, God's people are scattered, and God's place lies in rubble. And Nehemiah goes, this is not the way things are supposed to be. What do we see is Nehemiah's response. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is broken over this. He's broken. The city lies in ruins. The people are still scattered. He doesn't care God, I want to make sure you understand. He doesn't care about the physical architecture of the city. He cares about the glory of God represented by the city and God's people. Nehemiah is driven now to do something about this situation. His brokenness is simply a prelude to what God is going to do. 
And this is the heart of a reformer. This is where I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning. I want us to think and talk explicitly about what makes the heart of a reformer. What makes the heart of a reformer? What drives the heart of a reformer? So three components in the heart of a reformer. Now we'll get to that second page. A deep conviction about the way things should be. What's it take for a reformation? I'd encourage you to go back and study the, the layman's uh, revival or the layman's reformation started in, in New York and Go back and look that up at some time. What's it take for a reformation to take place? A deep, first of all, the reformer has to have a deep conviction about the way things should be. For Christians, okay, for Christians, these are going to be defined in God's Word. They must be defined by God's Word. Why? Otherwise, we're just back to the garden where we're saying we're going to define it the way we want to define it. So how do Christians define it? God's way from God's word. In the scriptures, we see God's vision for the way things are supposed to be. You realize that? When you read through the word of God, Old and New Testament, you see God's vision for the way things and how they're supposed to be. We see this in the garden, that man was supposed to trust God with absolutely everything. Included the way things should be, God's vision for that. We see this in the law and God's guidance and, and how to be His people. God has given His vision for the, how things should be. This is why it's important that God's people know God's Word. If you don't know God's vision for the way things ought to be, then your only other option is settling for the way you think things are supposed to be. And here we are, back to the garden, right? Hope you see that. It's either the way God's vision or man's vision. It's the two options. There's not a middle ground. We should want things to be the way God intends for them to be. So God's word reveals God's desire for the way things ought to be. And then what you hear, like, well, let me just give a basic, how are things, what's God's like very basic general like, vision for the way things ought to be? I think this is summarized in love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor, right? Those are the, the two, like, I think that kind of summarizes us, summarizes for us God's vision for the way things should be. And then what does Jesus say at the end of his ministry? He says, go make disciples. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying is God's people are to go out and help other people become these sorts of people. People that would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and people that would love their neighbor as themselves. That's what Jesus means. Go make disciples. But we must have a deep conviction about God's vision for the world. It must be something that holds us and not something, some cute belief that we hold, and maybe one day we might change and Something else, a conviction, something that holds us, as Dr. Moeller would help us understand. Next, we take God's vision of how things ought to be, and we apply that to the various contexts that we find ourselves in. What does it look like to live out God's vision for your workplace? What is God's vision for working? Whether that's at the home, or for another employer, what is God's vision for the way things ought to be in that place, in that context? What does it mean? What does it look like to live out God's vision for relationships with your coworkers, even the one who frustrates you or maybe even hurts you? What does it mean to love your neighbor, to love your enemy? What about God's vision for your family, for your parenting, for your marriage? You have the heart of a reformer for your marriage, for your family, for your parenting. I want to give you a couple little notes here. First of all, be encouraged. We have hope that God's vision is going to be brought about. Okay? I just want to insert some 
encouragement here. God's ultimate vision is that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we love our neighbors as ourselves. God is going to bring this about and his vision for everything else in time. He's going to bring this about. Right? God is the ultimate reformer. We see that ultimately in Jesus Christ displayed there. Jesus' death, I'm still underneath like that one be encouraged, okay? I'm still underneath that point. Jesus' death provides the way and secures the results, okay? Jesus' death paves the way that what we're talking about here will come about. Jesus was the ultimate reformer. He gave everything in order to bring about what should be in our hearts. His death and resurrection is bringing about hearts in each of us that fulfill God's vision above loving Him with everything and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's a side note. That's number one. Number two, you must spend time in the Word in order to develop deep convictions about God's vision for the world. Let's let that one resonate for a little while. All right, so moving on from those couple things, I'm not going to expound upon that one. Nehemiah had deep convictions. Nehemiah wanted to see God's people living under God's rule in God's place. This represented God's glory among the nations, and that ultimately being Nehemiah's concern, I believe. You know, when I look at my own life, church, I have deep convictions for my kids and for my marriage. I have deep convictions for the city that we live in. I have deep convictions for this church and what it should look like and how its people should live and how we should live in relationship with each other. And God has a vision for this church and the way things should be. My prayer is let us be a people who have deep convictions about the way things should be. Let us be people whose convictions are guided by the Word of God. We live in a convictionless society. We just kind of do whatever or whenever. And the only thing that drives our convictions is whatever makes us feel good for the moment. And that has just permeated the church. What drives us is what's best for me right now. What will make me feel best. God's vision is so much grander than that. And so much less man-centered than that. So deep conviction, the heart of a reformer, a deep conviction, what drives him? A deep conviction about the way things should be. And of course I would caveat that as, as, as defined by God's word for those who are followers of Jesus. Number two, a broken heart about the way things are. Deep convictions are crucial and without which there can be no broken hearts. Nehemiah's heart is broken about the state of the kingdom. So conviction, deep convictions are important, but a broken heart for the way things should be, without that, there can be no reformation. You will not do anything about it. Let me say this. Your heartbreak reveals your convictions. God uses conviction to break your heart. And so if your heart's not broken about something, then there was no conviction about it. If your heart doesn't break for the lostness of your coworker, then you have no conviction about such things. It was a point of repentance for me this past week. My coworker's rusty. I wasn't broke. It wasn't about his lostness, just for the record. Look at Nehemiah verse 4. He says, As soon as I heard these things, these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. My question is, when did any of us do that ever recently? Thanks, Chapman. God uses conviction to break your heart. Let me ask this question what sin? Brokenness or shame around you should be breaking your heart, but maybe doesn't. The marriages that you see at work, they broken. 
I mean, this is what I hear often. I hear from workplace scenarios, you've got this man's complaining about his wife and, and this, or you've got this lady and in the lunchroom talking about how bad her husband is. And I mean, does that break your heart? It's not the way it should be. For some of us, maybe if we understood that, that God's gift of marriage says something at all times, each one of our marriages says something at all times about Jesus' relationship with His bride. And if you care about Jesus' relationship with its bride and, and what it says to the world, then we would be broken about the marriages that we see around us. I want you to see Christ's brokenness. We already read this, Matthew 23, verse 37 and 38. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's saying this is not the way things should be. The way things should be is how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. That's the way things should be. But the way things are and should not be is you were not willing. And see, your house is left to you desolate. That's not the way things should be. Jesus' conviction and heartbreak here and many other places will lead him to the cross to do something about it. So, two parts so far that drive the heart of a reformer. One is a deep conviction about the way things should be. Second, a broken heart about the way things are. And I think we cannot overlook, I think this is more implied in the passage than it is explicit, but a sense from God that I should do something about it. Here's where I just simply want to recognize at this point that there's going to be brokenness everywhere. And it takes guidance from the Holy Spirit, it takes wisdom I'm assuming in there lots of guidance from the scriptures on what you're being led to do something about. Alright, so if it's brokenness in your own heart and sin in your own heart, go after it. There's no question. Like you don't, don't need to pray about that. I mean, you need to pray about it, but you like you gotta do something about it. When we look out in our world, there's brokenness everywhere, and we can't do something about everything. And I think when we look outward, there's going to be, God's going to break us about, break our hearts for certain things and give us a sense of direction to do something about it. This is where you get some people like, like um, I, I didn't tell them I was going to do this, but Robbie and Kristen, and, you know, and they're, uh, so I hope you don't get upset with me, but, uh, you know, uh, something about the, the brokenness in, in marriages and, and parenting and all of that, and so leading to do something about it and Leads us to the fostering and kids and things like that. Like, so, but not all of us have a sense from God to do something about that. And that's okay. Now, how can we partner with them and all of that? That's, those are in the days ahead, and I know many of you guys have been doing that already, and praise God for that. But I just want to help us draw some distinction here. And you know, when it comes to the brokenness, we're not going to be able to fix everything. God will eventually. It will all be fixed eventually as we're brokenness in our own hearts, I think is a little bit of a different thing where if God reveals sin, we are supposed to take captive every thought. We're supposed to go after that. So, but first, but back to the main point, a sense from God that I should do something about it. Nehemiah, as we see here in the text, has a deep conviction about the how, how things should be. Then God breaks his heart for the way things should be. And then lastly, he is led to do something about it. Of course, where does Nehemiah begin? He begins with fasting and praying. God's going to lead him to do something about it. Now let's talk about Jesus here in the remainder of our moments together. Jesus had a deep conviction about the way things were to be. Do you all agree with that? I think both because he spent eternity in heaven with the Father and that in many ways, represents how things are supposed to be. But I think also because Jesus knew the Scriptures. It doesn't take long until you get to Jesus, who's about 12 years old, and He's confounding the teachers in the temple by His knowledge of the Scriptures. They're going, wow, how do you know the Scriptures so well? 
I think it's because Jesus studied them. I think he had a unique gifting of the Holy Spirit in the sense that Jesus, like, there was no sin hindering him. I think Jesus gave himself to learning his Father's words. He was growing in wisdom and no doubt conviction. His heart began to break as he looked at the nations and realized that things were not as they should be. I wonder if Jesus, when he looked at the age of 12, 13, 10, whatever, and he knows the word of God and he's looking out and going, but Father, this isn't the way this is supposed to be. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And as he reads the scriptures and realizes, and God, you've, Father, you've sent me to do something about it. You've sent me to do something about it. Jesus knew, or God's vision, let me say this, God's vision was not that his people would simply follow a set of rules. I think Jesus knew the word well enough to know that God's plan all along wasn't to just dwell in a physical temple or city built by man's hands. I think Jesus knew that God's vision was that his people would be given new hearts by faith that would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think Jesus knew that God's vision was not to inhabit just Jerusalem, but was to inhabit the entire earth. For God's people, where he dwelt, to fill the entire earth. Jesus knew, I think, God knew, Jesus knew that God's plan was to dwell in his people, to fill the entire earth that way. Jesus died so that hearts would be changed into dwelling places of God, that God's image bearers would then fill the earth. Not just the city of Jerusalem, but the whole earth. Not just these four walls, but the places we find ourselves at work the places we find ourselves caring for our kids. Now maybe you're here today and you're kind of lost on this. What is, all right, so God and, uh, yeah, like I see it. Uh, uh. Maybe you think God is a good idea, it's a cool thing, it's, it's helpful, it's a useful thing in my life, but maybe the idea of, of Him being king, maybe me living under His complete rule, maybe, it's, maybe that's something I've never really thought about. I want to encourage you that life in heaven with God, life full of joy now, is dependent upon faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance of the sins that we've done, that you've done, and placing your faith in Jesus as the payment for those sins. Faith in His work on the cross as payment for those. Then, God can be king of your life. By doing this, by, by us, when we repent and place our faith in Jesus and, and submission to His rule, what we are doing is we are renouncing our vision for the way things should be and embracing God's vision for the way things should be. Particularly His vision for your heart and for your life. So if you've not done that, I, I pray that you would do that today. You'd repent of your sins, place your faith in Jesus. Submit your life to Him. Renounce your vision for the way things should be and submit that to God. Now let's kind of jump back to Jesus here for a few moments. <clears throat> do you share, Christian, do you share the same conviction with Jesus? Particularly, Jesus believed that the way it should be, and that is this, God's people inhabited by God filling the earth. Jesus' conviction is that by this, by God inhabiting His people and filling the earth, that God's glory would be displayed in that way. And that God's glory was worth filling the entire earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's glory is worth filling the entire earth by God's people and dwelt by God, displaying the glory of God? Do you believe that? Do you have a deep conviction about that? 
Listen to this. A.W. Tozer, as some of you know, I'm reading in one of his books, he says this, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. And I think, even in our church here today, we have the same problem. Many of us, our concept of God is not worthy of anything anything I just want like do we the God that Jesus believed was worthy his glory worthy of filling the earth was the great triune God the great trinity God the three in one the self-existing God who is dependent upon nothing else, the self-sufficiency of God, the eternity of God, God's infinitude, God's all-knowing, God's unchangeableness, the providence of God, the goodness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the holiness of God. This was the God that Jesus believed was worthy of filling the earth by inhabiting His people. Jesus had a deep conviction about this. Do you have a deep conviction that this God is worthy of His glory being displayed among the whole earth? The question for us today is this. Are we at the point where we are willing to do something about it? Do we want God's glory on display through people loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then them filling the earth with that. Let's do these things, church. Let's do this. Let's ask God to help us to see by faith in God's word the way things ought to be. Let's ask God to do that. What's going to come from that? Conviction. Let's ask God to do that. Something we can't do. We can't develop these convictions on our own. Our convictions will be that which serve us. God's convictions will come from His Word. There is brokenness all around us, from broken marriages to broken parenting, all the way to the most important, and that is broken relationships with God. Let's ask God for deep convictions defined by His Word. And let's ask God to help us by faith see in the world around us and in us how things are not as they should be as defined by God's word. And let's ask God to break our hearts as our Savior's heart was broken. And then lastly, let's ask God to give us the faith to help us do something about it. Jesus' conviction and brokenness led him to the cross where he did something about it. And his work on the cross, and then God's work in bringing about your faith in Jesus, was the formula for bringing about the kingdom of God, for bringing about things the way they should be a heart, deep convictions, defined by God broken hearts over the way things and how they're, they're not as they should be. And then guidance, of course, from the Holy Spirit to do something about it. And so what we're going to talk about as we work through Nehemiah. Nehemiah is getting ready to do something about the situation. And we will talk about that over the next few weeks. So I want to pray for us. We'll worship here with another song. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that desire to read your words so that we might know your deep convictions about the way things should be. Father, you would then break our hearts, revealing our convictions and giving us the recipe for being reformers. We would see the brokenness and, and be broken about it. And then, with joy and faith 
And by your grace, we would be those who would bring about a reformation. And Father, I just pray that as a church, that when your people begin to develop deep convictions, begin to develop broken hearts, and certainly each of us are going to have different convictions, different hearts broken about different things, and you're going to call us to unique situations, Father, but but also believe that as a body, that you'll break our hearts about a lot of the same things. And Father, and then when a bunch of people's hearts are convicted and broken about the same things, all pointed in a similar direction, Father, that is the beginning of a reformation. Now, Father, I pray that you would do something great like that in our midst. That you would do something great that could only be explained by you. That you did it. Give us your convictions, Father, and give us the heart of your Son who's broken to do something about it. Father, we, we were broken, but we have been healed. You are putting us back together. You are molding us into the image of your Son. You are filling us with your presence. That we would display your glory to the earth, Father. Let us be people who help other people become people who love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Father, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?